Our scripture today comes from the book of Esther, chapters 6 and 7. <clears throat> On that night, the king could not sleep, and he gave orders to bring the book of records, the annals, and they were read to the king. It was found written how Mordecai had told about Bithana and Teresh, two of the king's eunuchs, who guarded the threshold and who had conspired to assassinate King Ahasuerus. Then the king said, what honor or distinction has been bestowed on Mordecai for this? The king's servants who attended him said, nothing has been done for him. The king said, who is in the court? Now Haman had just entered the outer court of the king's palace to speak to the king about having Mordecai hanged on the gallows that Haman had prepared for him. So the king's servants told him, Haman is there, standing in the court. The king said, let him come in. So Haman came in, and the king said to him, what shall be done for the man whom the king wishes to honor? Haman said to himself, whom would the king wish to honor more than me? So Haman said to the king, for the man the king wishes to honor, let royal robes be brought, which the king has worn, and a horse that the king has ridden with a royal crown on its head. Let the robes and the horse be handed over to one of the king's most noble officials. Let him robe the man whom the king wishes to honor, and let him conduct the man on horseback through the open square of the city, proclaiming before him, thus shall it be done for the man whom the king wishes to honor. Then the king said to Haman, quickly, Take the robes and the horse, as you have said, and do so to the Jew Mordecai, who sits at the king's gate. Leave out nothing that you have mentioned. So Haman took the robes and the horse and robed Mordecai and led him riding through the open square of the city, proclaiming, Thus shall it be done for the man whom the king wishes to honor. Then Mordecai returned to the king's gate, but Haman hurried to his house, mourning and with his head covered. When Haman told his wife, Zeresh, and all his friends everything that had happened to him, his advisors and his wife, Zeresh, said to him, if Mordecai, before whom your downfall has begun, is of the Jewish people, you will not prevail against him, but will surely fall before him. While they were still talking with him, the king's eunuchs arrived and hurried Haman off to the banquet that Esther had prepared. So the king and Haman went into feast with Queen Esther. On the second day, as they were drinking wine, the king again said to Esther, what is your petition, Queen Esther? It shall be granted to you. And what is your request? Even to the half of my kingdom, 
it shall be fulfilled. Then Queen Esther answered, If I have won your favor, O king, and if it pleases the king, let my life be given me. That is my petition. And the lives of my people, that is my request. For we have been sold, I and my people, to be destroyed, to be killed, and to be annihilated. If we had been sold merely as slaves, men and women, I would have held my peace. But no enemy can compensate for this damage to the king. Then King Ahasuerus said to Queen Esther, Who is he? And where is he who has presumed to do this? Esther said, A foe and an enemy, this wicked Haman. Then Haman was terrified before the king and the queen. The king rose from the feast in wrath and went into the palace garden. But Haman stayed to beg his life from Queen Esther, for he saw that the king had determined to destroy him. When the king returned from the palace garden to the banquet hall, Haman had thrown himself on the couch where Esther was reclining, and the king said, will he even assault the queen in my presence, in my own house? As the words left the mouth of the king, they covered Haman's face. Then Harbona, one of the eunuchs in attendance on the king, said, Look, the very gallows that Haman has prepared for Mordecai, whose word saved the king, stands at Haman's house, 50 cubits high. And the king said, Hang him on that. And so they hanged Haman on the gallows, he had prepared for Mordecai. Then the anger of the king abated. These are our sacred stories. Thanks be to God. The book of Esther, as we have it in our Bibles, does not mention God, not once. It does not mention prayer. There are no angels and no miracles, no manna, no godly communications. John Calvin did not include Esther in his biblical commentaries. Martin Luther openly disliked Esther. In one of his table talks, he said, I am so great an enemy to Esther that I wish it had not come to us at all, for it has too many heathen unnaturalities. This is not the only point upon which Martin Luther and I disagree. <laughs> Luther thought the book of Esther an enemy, and I think it's a friend. There are three versions of the book of Esther. There's the Hebrew language version, which as I said, we have in our Bibles. And then there are two Greek language versions. There's a short Greek language version and a longer one. The longer one is the more well-known. When Jews living in Alexandria composed the Septuagint, which is the Greek language version of the First Testament, they chose to rewrite the book of Esther. While the version they composed is largely based on the Hebrew version, it's not a translation. 
they notably added prayer and God. In the Septuagint's version, there's a prayer by Esther, a prayer by Mordecai, and just before the Esther approaches the king, the Greek version says, Esther, feeling faint with fear, goes before the king, but God changed the king's heart, and in the king's kindness, he invited Esther to come before him. We don't have either Greek version in our Bibles, and I don't even think you should bother reading them. We have the Hebrew version, the version with no mention of God, and I'm glad. Stories have power. Much of the Bible is written in story format, meaning that while none of the narratives begin once upon a time, story is the framework for much of what is included. Actually, I really wish some of the narratives began with Once Upon a Time. It would have saved us all a lot of heartache. Both stories of creation, for example, if they just started Once Upon a Time, surely we wouldn't still be arguing about this. <laughs> the Bible is full of story and myth. Some of the narratives are based on historical people and events, and some are complete fiction, story, with no basis in fact. But we all know that truths can be conveyed whether the details of the story actually took place or not. Many truths are found in the storybooks that begin once upon a time. And as we know, in this age where misinformation is rampant, when we're believing a story it's important to know what's factual and what isn't. So to that end, Esther might just as well begin once upon a time. Esther is a satire. It uses humor, irony, exaggeration, and ridicule to expose and criticize the Persian government's stupidity and vices. So that part's true. There really was a Persian government and they really did seem to have a lot of stupidity and vices. The rest of it is pure story. So one queen won't come when she's asked for and another queen comes risking her life when she's not been asked for. Strong women are contrasted with inept men. Major policy decisions like an edict to kill all the Jews are made on a whim while what to do with a defiant Queen Vashti is a gigantic political crisis. The king makes no decisions on his own, none, some ruler. He must consult his advisors on everything, including how to find a new wife. There are extreme exaggerations. All of the numbers are outrageous. The story begins with a party that lasts 180 days. Even the best parties I've been to didn't last 180 days. Esther and the other women who have arguably been sex trafficked must undergo an entire year of beauty regimens. That's a lot of face cream. The gallows that Haman builds are 50 cubits high. Now we just go right by that, 50 cubits high. That's six stories. Haman suggests prize money 
in the whole let's kill all the Jews part of the story. And he says, let's give them 10,000 talents of silver. Again, we just read by that, no problem, 10,000 talents of silver. Well, by today's standards, that's about $315 million. So not only, thank you, Sebastian, exactly the right response. Not only is that an outrageous sum of money, listen to just, just how you're gonna get this done, okay? A silver talent weighed approximately 30 kilograms. So 10,000 talents would weigh 300,000 kilograms or 300 tons. That's about 60 elephants. This is ridiculous. He's getting it. We heard this morning, I think one of the funniest scenes in the whole story, Haman enters the palace early that morning with designs to finally get to kill Mordecai on his six-story-high six gallows. That's his plan. He just needs to get the king to approve it. And instead, he is forced to publicly honor Mordecai, the man he wanted to kill. He has to put Mordecai on a horse. The horse has a crown on its head. He has to dress Mordecai in the robes of the king. And then he has to shout, and Karen did such a great job. Thus it shall be done for the man whom the king wishes to honor. How deliciously embarrassing. It's funny. By giving Haman a face of evil, but the feet of a buffoon, this story defames fear. The story gives anyone facing real Haman's courage. It uses comedy to replace fear with bravery. The Persian government official, Haman, who keeps trying to find ways to humiliate and obliterate the Jews, ends up parading a Jewish man around the city with all the pomp and circumstance he thought was his own due. It's not just funny, it's poignant. This is the Bible Times equivalent of the best New Yorker political cartoon. <laughs> Can't you imagine folks laughing so hard they're crying? Tears not just of hilarity, but tears of an oppressed people finding relief in this story. When I worked for Hospice of New Jersey, we were constantly laughing. It seems strange, I suppose, but humor can help us cope. It can help us make it through some really difficult days. It can also show us hard truths. This is what the best political cartoons do. But humor is not what Esther is known for. If you can quote from Esther, you can probably quote from chapter four. When Mordecai says to Esther, do you not think that in the king's palace you will escape any more than all the other Jews? For if you keep silent at such a time as this, relief and deliverance will rise for the Jews from another quarter. But you and your father's family will perish. Who knows? Perhaps you've come to royal dignity for just such a time as this. But friends, in context, even this scene has some humor to it. It's part of a conversation between Esther and her cousin Mordecai, who's also her uncle, but really her cousin, it's confusing. 
Anyway, Esther and Mordecai don't speak to each other directly. There are messengers who happen to be eunuchs. So imagine a eunuch running from the palace where we find the resplendent Queen Esther to the city square where Mordecai sits in sackcloth and ashes. You tell Esther, says Mordecai, that she needs to go to the king and plead for the lives of her people. Okay, the eunuch runs. No, you tell Mordecai, says Esther, that I have to be summoned to the king. I can't just show up there pleading in base case. And you tell Esther, Mordecai shouts, do not think you've come to the king's palace and that you'll escape like the other Jews. Who knows? Come on, tell her. Who knows? Maybe you were brought to royal dignity for just this moment. Convince her. And off runs the eunuch back to the palace. Esther sighs. Fine. Go tell him. But first, he has to gather all the Jewish people and spend three days fasting. And then I'll go to the king and break the law. And if he kills me, he kills me. It's kind of like watching a tennis match. If it were set on a stage, that the eunuch would just run back and forth between the palaces. Well, the king doesn't kill her. The king extends his scepter. <clears throat> the king extends his scepter toward Esther. And after some parties, Esther reveals her secret Jewish identity and pleads for her life and the life of all the Jews. The king gets mad and wants to know who's put Esther in danger. It's Haman. And then, as you heard, the king goes away. Haman lays on the couch with Esther to plead his case. The king comes back to find Haman in Esther's bed, laying next to her. <clears throat> so Haman ends up hanging from the gallows he built for Mordecai, and the Jews are saved. Esther acts in a crucial moment. She finds unsanctioned means to keep her people from destruction. So often, the women in the stories of the Bible are portrayed only as objects, not as people with power and possibilities. Esther, whose name means hidden, Esther finds her own way out of hiding, out of stereotypes, out of male-dominated expectations. Esther is not a likely hero, but in the midst of a violent oppression set in place by foolish leaders, she acts with bravery. I think we need her. I know I need her. And humor, too, it's just too hard without it. We need to find ways to laugh. Our laughter can help us keep going. Our laughter can help us see what we'd rather ignore. Our laughter can help us turn our fear into courage. Esther acts decisively in a story where God is silent. Perhaps it's the silence of God, the absence of God, that makes Esther such a compelling book for me and not just the humor. In this story, there's not one prophet who hears God's voice, not one action attributed to God. God does not appear at all in the story. So if God is present, God is hidden. The hidden God of love is part of my story too. 
maybe yours as well. I've never had an angel visit me. I've seen no burning bushes. A pillar of fire has never illuminated my path. It seems to me that faith includes ambiguity and mystery and silence. The story of Esther is about having faith in a time when it is not easy to have faith. One of my college professors recently mailed me a paper I wrote. She asked me if I had a copy and I didn't even remember the paper she was talking about. I was impressed she still had it. I've been rereading that paper and part of it reads, I am a daughter without a mother present to me all the time. Let me start that part again. It's a little dear to me. daughter without a mother present to me all the time, or at least not present in the way other mothers are present to their daughters. This does not mean that I do not feel the comfort of closeness of my mother. I'm a daughter who has experienced the loss of a mother. I'm not a motherless daughter. In many ways, this is how I feel about God. I often feel like a Christian who is without God present to me all the time or present in the way others perceive God to be to them. This, however, does not mean that I don't feel the comfort and closeness of God. I have felt the loss of God, but I am not godless. God is, even when it seems God is hiding in my times of distress. While Esther is one of only two books in our Bible that does not mention God, there are several books in our sacred stories that tell of God's absence. Lamentations, Isaiah, Jeremiah, the Psalms. The cry of God's absence is heard throughout the Bible. According to Rene Pascal, any religion that does not affirm that God is hidden is not true. Here's some of these lines from the Psalms. Why, O Lord, do you stand so far off? Why, O God, do you hide from me in times of trouble? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Do not be silent, O Lord, and do not hide your face in my distress. God is never mentioned in Esther. God is silent, but Esther refuses to keep silent at such a time. It seems to me that the once hidden Esther who refuses to be silent, refuses to stay in her place, Esther reveals the divine. God is not mentioned, but love. Love, another name for God. Love is present on every page of this story. Love as resistance, love as determination, love as humor, love as courage in the face of fear. I'm grateful that Esther is in our biblical canon. 
I'm grateful for a good laugh at the expense of an abusive empire. And I'm grateful for a brave woman. I'm most grateful for the story of a hidden God, because so often that is my story too. Maybe yours. Amen. Um,